In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Michelle Boo of Stripe about the new Stripe Elements library, upcoming changes to Stripe.js, and tons of details about how Stripe is put together on the back end. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 60. Hey everyone, welcome to Full Stack Radio episode 60. I'm your host Adam, as always, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with Michelle Boo, who's an engineer at Stripe. How's it going, Michelle? Hi, Adam. So I guess um, for anyone who's not familiar with you, do you mind just kind of giving a brief kind of introduction and speaking a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today at Stripe? Sure. So I'm Michelle. I have been at Stripe for three and a half years now. I joined straight out of college, actually, in 2013. And when I first joined Stripe, we were about 50 people total. The product team was three people total, so kind of worked across the stack there. Uh, one of my first projects was actually hooking up faxing to PDFs so I could file dispute evidence to banks. So I kind of learned a lot about banking and the payment industry when I first joined. Right now, I am currently the lead engineer on Stripe Elements, which is uh, part of our new version of Stripe.js. Awesome. Yeah. So that's kind of how uh, we got introduced as I was trying to integrate uh, Stripe elements to something that I was working on and you responded to some questions that I had on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, so I guess for anyone who hasn't had a chance to check out Stripe elements yet, uh, what is it kind of all about and what motivated sort of, uh, you know, building that and moving off of uh, the custom form stuff that you had before? Yeah. So one of the primary motivating factors for building elements is we've always wanted sort of building blocks for forms. It is really kind of silly that every merchant today who has to build a payment form needs to build all their validation, all their formatting from scratch. We did release a library a couple of years ago called jQuery.payment, which I think a lot of people use to format their uh, payment fields. Uh, but this is another dependency that every single developer then has to pull in and integrate. And then it also depends on jQuery, so they have to pull in jQuery as well. And this is all something that we at Stripe, who have dealt with a lot of conversion experiments and seeing a lot of merchants integrate can feel like we can do better for all of our users. So that's kind of the idea behind it. And as we expand more into alternate payment methods like ideal or payment methods from other countries, it becomes more useful for us to provide a set of elements for the merchants. So they don't have to spend a lot of time integrating redirects and uh, showing things like that. Awesome. Yeah. So I guess the main difference that I saw from someone trying to integrate with it is that now, like you're saying, all the fields are hosted yeah. with Stripe and served through an iframe. So if you need to make updates to it to fix mm -hmm. different things or anything like that, it, no one else really has to worry about it. They just kind of transparently get fixes and stuff like that. Yeah. What are kind of the challenges, I guess, involved in using that approach versus how things were done before? Yeah, so people like customizing their payment forms. They want their styles. They want their custom web fonts. Definitely one of the biggest challenges is getting styles to work in that iframe. We have a whitelisted set of styles that we allow you to customize, and we've experimented with a lot, and it's pretty much the set of things that folks want to customize with their inputs. The other biggest UX issue we ran into with these iframe fields is just compatibility on mobile. We wanted to make it feel really seamless on mobile. So if you actually try playing around with elements on your iPhone, uh, you'll see that the arrow keys that allow you to move back and forth 
across fields actually works with elements. Uh, whereas if you just put an input inside an environment frame, it actually won't work as you intend. So we have a lot of hidden form fields and hidden inputs inside the frame and outside the frame to help with that sort of thing. Interesting. So you have to do things like putting a field in the DOM on the kind of customer yeah. side that are hidden that you can yeah. tab through and that sends like events back and forth. Yeah. That's really crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had to deal with a lot of browser bugs here. For example, you, in uh, on iOS mobile, you can't programmatically focus unless it's synchronous with a tap. So okay. we had to make sure that focus worked. Another one was autofill. I don't know if you noticed, but when you autofill on a Stripe element, it highlights the entire background of the field to be yellow. That's something we had to we had to detect autofill and fire events wow. back and forth. Yeah, that sounds like a huge pain. So what do you guys support in terms of browsers and stuff like that? Yeah, so our support, our tested support goes all the way back to IE9. The old version of Stripe.js uh, supported IE6, uh, which made us uh, have to maintain a lot of very old code just to support IE6. We had to do a lot of hacks to have cores work there. Yeah, I bet. So um, with the new elements kind of main component that is recommended, one thing that Mm -hmm. I thought was sort of interesting about it is it seems like a really different take on kind of the experience of filling in your credit card, like trying to do it all in a single mm-hmm. field, even though you know you still might end up having to put in four values there. Um, can mm-hmm. you speak at all to what sort of uh, motivated like designing that experience and what kind of went into that? Right. Um, so one of the biggest issues with having iframes on your page is that it, the more iframes you have, the slower your page is because you're loading that asset every single time. Uh, so we wanted to reduce the number of iframes you have to put on your page with elements. Uh, And as we introduce more elements, you're going to inevitably end up adding more iframes to the page. So we want to make each one lighter so you don't have to have four iframes on your page just to collect credit card information. We also tested the single input a lot. We, for example, the CVC will flip over to the CVC side of the card when you're entering CVC. And we've seen a lot of versions of the single card input on other sites that uh, didn't have as much attention to detail. For example, on American Express cards, the CVC is actually on the front of the card. So they'll flip the card over, but the CVC is actually on the front. Um, so in the Stripe card elements, uh, for Amex CVC, it'll stay on the front of the card. Uh, so just little things like that. We tested out with some users, and uh, we found that conversion was much better with the single card field than with split fields. Uh, although we did spend a lot of effort on our split field version of elements and autofill across iframes works there as well. Yeah. I noticed that there's some really interesting things going on where they can all sort of talk to each other. And yeah. Stuff yeah. Like yeah. It's pretty cool. So I guess one thing that is kind of cool about it, uh, which I also notice happens in uh, Stripe checkout is you're able to do like really intelligent detection of um, like what country the card is from mm-hmm. and stuff. So you can suggest a placeholder that, you know, makes locale based sense based on if it's a, you know, a Canadian card, it looks like yeah. a Canadian postal code. US, it looks like a zip code. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you do something like that? Like what's involved with that? Um, so we, we actually have a database of bins. So bins are the first six digits of your card number. And the bins will generally map to a set of countries um, the primary country being the first country that appears. So that's generally a good guess of where uh, that card is from. And we're actually not allowed to release 
our BIM database because that's something we get from our banking partners. So we have yeah. a, a compressed version of our BINs and we have an algorithm that actually shows up in checkout as well where we take the bins and we kind of minify them and then we parse the minified version and determine what uh, country your bin is from. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I kind of wondered about that because I've seen once or twice uh, with stuff that I've worked on where maybe a Canadian card will come through Mm -hmm. without a postal code, which Mm -hmm. makes me think somehow it wasn't detected that it was Mm -hmm. a Canadian card and it wasn't asked for. Is that something that you run into on a regular basis? Is that database like constantly being updated to account for sort of new patterns that you find and stuff like that? Yeah, we update it regularly, but it's a very manual process. Uh, It's like we get a new file from our banking partners and we update our database and then we have to update the file on the front end. Um, So yeah, it is very manual because new bins are being added all the time. Yeah. Um, Speaking of which, that's actually another reason why uh, we're really excited about having hosted fields. So new card credit cards that are being issued might also have 19 digits in the future, for example, instead of 16. Um, so this kind of breaks a lot of assumptions that users might make when building their own card forms. And we, as the people in the industry, kind of know about those things before they're going to happen. So we can update our UIs to account for that. Yeah, it definitely seems like the smartest approach. It also solves a lot of uh, horrible, painful things that you have to do with like uh, so the other day, for example, I was trying to build like a postal code field because uh, mm-hmm. I had it disabled in Stripe Elements, but I wanted to be able to have it separate to mm-hmm. help me calculate some things. And I needed to try and figure out a way to do input masking and stuff on it. Oh, yeah. And these are like such complicated things to implement that I would have never thought were as hard to get working as they yeah. actually are. Are there any other kind of challenges like that that people maybe take for granted uh, that a lot of work had to go into to make them work as nicely as you see with Stripe Elements? Yeah, Animations is one of them. Animations uh, across different platforms will look very different. Uh, in iOS mobile, there is a, a I guess it's a feature, but uh, on iOS you can like use your uh, cursor, you can move your cursor around on the keyboard. So they have like, like flexible cursor thing that's always visible. Uh, and that means that when you animate, this cursor jumps around a ton. So we had to force a re-render in iOS mobile to get that to work. There's, yeah, the masking is a big part of uh, Elements as well. We have uh, this higher order component in React that will take any string um, and any masking algorithm and it will do the masking for us. So we spent a lot of time on that. Uh, There's actually still some edge case bugs in browsers that React is not as uh, well supported in, like Internet Explorer. Um, that causes masking to be a bit slower or a bit janky. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to ask you about that. Um, you know, mm-hmm. what technologies are used to build Stripe elements? So it's uh, mostly done in React then? Yeah. So right now it is written in React. Uh, we are looking into other frameworks that are smaller than React because obviously React is very, very heavy as a framework for just rendering inputs. Mm-hmm. So we are looking into things like Preact or Inferno to make the build size go down. Interesting. Yeah, is performance, has that been uh, a Mm -hmm. big challenge with Stripe Elements then? Yeah, so one of the things that's really important to us is bundle size. Um, I I know most web apps on the web really don't care about bundle size these days, but for us, because we are blocking your payment flow, if we don't load very quickly, uh, bundle size is very important. 
So our, we actually have two different scripts. We have an outer script, which you load onto your page. This is what is loaded when you load jsfstripe.com slash v3. Uh, and that script needs to be really, really small so we can start initializing and start the bootstrapping of Stripe.js. Um, so that one, I think we have at 9 KB right now, but we want to get that smaller. Uh, and then the inner script, which that bootstrapping script loads up, uh, is right now at around 60 because of React. Um, but we want to get that lower as well, obviously. Uh, but as long as the outer script loads really quickly, we can do um, more to hide how slow the inner script yeah. is right now. Yeah. yeah, interesting. So what sort of stuff are you working on uh, with Stripe Elements now, if you can talk about it? Sure, yeah. So right now we're mostly working on First of all, deprecating v2 of Stripe.js, so moving that functionality over to elements, and of course, new elements. One of the biggest pains when building forms is building address forms. Um, you have to hook up to a database to get address validation uh, and autocomplete and things like that, and you have to kind of build your own logic every time for different countries. Uh, for example, Ireland, they can have three address lines. So forms that have only address line one and address line two are going to have trouble with that. Um, some countries don't have postal codes. Uh, some countries don't have states. Um, so there's all sorts of combinations here uh, that we could build an element for and have that automatically be handled for you. That's awesome. Yeah, that's interesting to hear that that's kind of the path that you're going down. Because I think that uh, is definitely a huge pain point for people. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a you know, it's not necessarily a payment related thing, but it's something that everyone who takes payments has to deal with. So it's cool to see that being something that uh, you're working on at Stripe. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So here's what Paul, the founder of CircleCI, had to say about one of their favorite features of Rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at CircleCI. Before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service, and we were shopping for a new one. And so we did the, the tour and looked at, at Rollbar and all of its competitors, and it was it was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is, is really... Uh, it's it's not just a great feature, but it also kind of speaks our language because we're very focused on making sure that customers are happy. And we want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer. So the fact that we're able to click on you know, th- this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the, the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is very important. If we get an email from a customer and the customer says, you know, your your website keeps glitching on me and being able to to go to Rollbar and to say, okay, you know, this individual customer, this is how they're experiencing the site. Because otherwise you, you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't we'd be dealing with it so i've been using rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app nitpick ci and loving it uh, if you want to check it out you can head over to rollbar.com slash full stack radio and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days so check that out and uh, thanks again to rollbar for sponsoring full stack radio what are kind of the plans for some of the other features that were supported in in stripe js v2 that aren't yet in elements like i know stuff like um collecting banking information directly and stuff yeah. like that you still require stripe js too yeah so some of those fit quite nicely into elements for example you can collect personal uh, identifying information in stripe js v2 and that fits very well into just an element uh that's a pretty plain input so in the immediate term we're probably just gonna port those functions over but in the future we would have a bank account element and we would have an element for um, every source that you could process with Stripe. 
at Stripe now we support uh, quite a few payment sources. If you look in the API docs, everything from SEPA direct debit to support, and we would like to build on ones for all of those. Awesome. Where does um, like Stripe checkout kind of fall in uh, the current scheme of things? Is that still something that um, is going to still be like a first class thing or is Elements sort of, it, it already seems like there's a lot of functionality that you used to be able to only get through checkout that you can mm-hmm. now get through Elements, but still have like that layer of customization that you couldn't have before. So what is kind of the direction there? Yeah, there's definitely still a use case for checkout. Uh, I personally always use checkout in my own side projects. It's very quick to set up. You can customize the colors in your dashboard, um, things like that. So there's definitely, checkout is still the quickest way to integrate with Stripe. Uh, but if you need a more custom flow, for example, some folks need to adjust the price after they collect an address. You can't use checkout anymore because uh, checkout is the last step in your flow. Yeah. Um, so people who want to build a more custom form will be using elements instead of checkout. Awesome. Kind of deviating from some of the, the Stripe JS and uh, Elements stuff a mm-hmm. little bit, I thought maybe I could ask you a couple questions about some things that I run into with Stripe sometimes that I'm not mm-hmm. sure what the best way for me to handle them is that maybe other people run into too. Something that I was dealing with the other day what that kind of never occurred to me before was that when you try to capture a payment token uh, with Stripe... Mm-hmm. Even if you have like your radar rules set up to block payments that don't match like CBC or don't match yeah. like a zip verification, uh, if those fields like aren't passed through at all when creating the payment token, Stripe is going to allow you to kind of bypass those radar rules, which mm-hmm. I think makes the most sense because there's like you said, there's a lot of banks where or countries that don't even have postal codes. Yep. So how are you supposed to verify the postal code in those situations? Yep. Something that occurred to me, though, is like, do I need to be careful to make sure that people aren't somehow like tampering with my payment forms to av- to be able to bypass CBC and address checks on cards where they- that should otherwise be happening? So that's definitely a possibility. Uh, as with all things on client side websites, they could tamper with the form. That's an interesting question. I guess like what what I've been doing, which is mm-hmm. what I'm wondering if this is kind of a good idea or, or if this is something you've recommended to people in the past, mm-hmm. is uh, for the project I'm working on now, when the payment token comes through, I'm actually making a request back to Stripe to get kind of the metadata about the payment token. And mm-hmm. that lets me see like, okay, well, this card is a Canadian card, but the zip field is coming back mm-hmm. as null instead of unchecked. So should I throw an error uh, because I should have collected, you know, a uh, postal code, but somehow it I didn't see. come through. Is that something that like you've heard of other people doing or is that a common practice? Uh, I don't think it's something that most folks do. I think that is a good solution, though. Uh, so do you do it when the payment token comes back from Stripe.js? I can check the payment token when it comes back on the client side, mm-hmm. uh, but I I worry that somehow yeah. someone could still yeah. change like that before it gets back to the server. So I request yeah. it again on the mm. server where I totally control it so I can check. But I'm always worried, like, is there any situation where I'm going to be refusing a payment now where I actually shouldn't have been collecting a postal code? Because for whatever mm-hmm. reason, this bank that this card is from, even though it's in Canada, doesn't do postal yeah, code verification yeah. or any of that stuff. Yeah, that just sounds like something we should be building for you. Cool. Yeah, that's a good good point. Yeah, it's all tricky, tricky stuff. Um, so I guess like something that a lot of people would probably love to know more about at Stripe, it's one of those services where you've managed to make things so simple and easy for everyone who uses it. But I'm sure as the people working on it at Stripe, 
you probably have to deal with some of the mm. most awful processes and horrible things to integrate with uh, in the world. Yeah. What What are some of the, you know, the real painful pieces that people are really taking for granted these days uh, that you have to deal with a lot, you know, when you're building products at Stripe? Yeah. Um, so uh, as I mentioned before, my first project at Stripe was building a faxing service. Uh, so when I first started, my first project was to try to make the dispute flow better. Um, so for those who don't know, a dispute is a chargeback, and this is something that you can file with your credit card company if you don't recognize an item on your credit card statement. And of course, when the merchants see this chargeback, they get a fee, they get a $15 fee from us, and they have to now submit evidence or else they risk losing that fee and the money from the transaction. Uh, so when I first started at Stripe, which was three and a half years ago, uh, our dispute evidence submission process only allowed a thousand characters. Um, and for American Express, it was actually only 444 characters for some arbitrary reason, uh, because the APIs that they gave to us only allowed that many characters of plain text for dispute evidence. So no one was really winning the disputes because you can't really submit much in plain text that will convince the banks to give you your money back. Um, so what we realized was that these banks also had a way of submitting disputes via fax. Um, and this is, they would literally print out the things that we fax them and process them slowly. Uh, so my project was to build a faxing service uh, and also to build a service that would combine evidence that the user uploads into one big PDF. Uh, and then we slapped a Stripe cover page on the top with all the information that we had on our end because we found that this helped dispute acceptance rates a lot. Um, and we submitted this bulky PDF over uh, to the banks. Um, That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And this was fine for a while. And then eventually they told us that we had filled up their fax room with <laughs> thousands of pages of dispute evidence. Um, and at this point, they finally gave us an email address to submit dispute evidence to. Um, so, so that took a while, but... We're not the size where we can actually impact our banking partners a little bit to do yep. these sorts of things for us. But before, when we were smaller, we definitely had to fiddle with a lot of hacks to get things to be really nice for the users. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um, I guess a, a question that might be interesting is what sort of technologies are you using on the back end at mm -hmm. Stripe these days? Yeah, um, so we are still mostly a Ruby shop. Our application code is written in Ruby. Yeah, we're mostly Ruby and JavaScript. If you use the Stripe dashboard much, you'll see that some of it is in React now. Uh, our dashboard stack used to be Backbone and CoffeeScript because we wrote it back in 2011, but we're yeah. slowly doing an incremental rewrite in React and Redux and all these modern technologies. Cool. So with the um, the Ruby stuff, mm -hmm. from what I understand, you guys aren't using Rails at all or anything like that. Nope. It's just like a totally custom thing. So yeah. what is the... Uh, kind of story there like how is it put together is there anything about it that's you know like other apps that are out there or mm -hmm. you know what kind of tools and stuff are involved there and how is it kind of uh i guess designed if yeah. uh, that's something worth talking about yeah sure um so our api is actually pretty standard uh we have a fork of sinatra that we've built up over time so it's mostly similar to sinatra if you read our api code the routes work just like sinatra 
what is interesting about our API is that we support versions, API versions, all the way back to 2011 or 2012, which means that we have a very, very heavy compatibility layer. Uh, luckily, this is not something that people uh, building things in the API day-to-day -day have to worry about. It's completely separate from our main API methods. It's just a layer that looks at your API version and then converts the API response that you would have gotten to one from your version. Interesting. So I was going to say like API versioning is a scary problem that I've mm -hmm. personally never had to deal with at you know, the level that of course Stripe has <laughs> to deal with it. Yeah. So how does that work when you're building new stuff? Do you have to, if you change something um, about how things fundamentally work to like support yeah. some new feature or something, how does the process of basically backporting all of the conversion layers to every different previous API version work? Is, is that as big of a problem as it sounds like it would be in my head? Yeah. So for big new features uh, and fundamental changes, if it's purely additional, then you on your old API version will get it. Uh, if it's a complete departure from something on your API version, then you'll have to upgrade your API version in order to get it. We don't consider uh, adding parameters to API responses as breaking changes. So that means if you're on a version from 2012, you probably have a lot of duplicate and junk parameters in your API Just response. Just like we changed names and stuff like that? Or? Yeah, yeah. So when we change a name, we will actually provide both names to older API versions. So you'll see both of them. Uh, and this makes it easier for you to upgrade because then you get to see the new version, the new name and the old name, and you can change your code to handle the new name before you upgrade your API version. Uh, but it also does mean that for users on 2012 API versions, they will have a ton of duplication in their API resources. Uh, but that's something we don't consider breaking because you shouldn't be like checking how many keys you're getting in your API response. Yeah. Is there any particularly challenging moments you can remember where it was hard to support something in multiple API versions? Or do you have a pretty good strategy figured out for that these days? Uh, we have a pretty good strategy for that these days. Um, we haven't had any big issues with breaking old API versions. There have been some, I think we used to have a SOAP API that we've now deprecated. So that was a big one, which was getting those users to finally move off of that API. And we kind of worked hand in hand with those users uh, to move them off. It's really, really hard to get people to upgrade uh, their yeah. code that is already working. Yeah. Uh, and for us, we can't just break someone's payment flow by saying, hey, we're going to deprecate this and you have no. to upgrade. Is there, is there a lot of pressure to sort of try and get things perfect before you ever deploy them because of that reason, because of the backwards compatibility concerns and stuff like that? Uh, I'd say most engineers don't have to worry about it because the compatibility layer just lives on its own. If you're doing something that is obviously a huge change from what is already in the API, then there's many reviews you have to go through anyways. But if you're just adding something small, or adding a new feature, then you generally don't have to worry about it. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Um, what about the stuff that has to actually go and like talk to banks and stuff like that? Is mm -hmm. that still just stuff that's written in Ruby that integrates with whatever these banks might have? Yeah. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So what is what are most of the banks and stuff like exposing? Like what is it like to, to integrate with some of these banking systems? Uh, for some of them, it's like we upload a file through SFTP. <laughs> um, others have real APIs. Uh, others have real APIs, but with really poor API docs or API docs that are 20 pages long and it's a PDF. 
So we, we do have a whole financial infrastructure team that takes care of those integrations. Uh, so as someone working on the API, you actually generally don't need to worry about those integrations. Just wanted to take a minute to thank Hired for sponsoring Full Stack Radio. So searching for a new job can feel stressful, scary, time-consuming. You know, you got pushy recruiters trying to sell you on roles that you don't want, or job boards that make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go through the whole interview process only to find out at the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. So Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. The goal of Hired is to make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. So instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. So you just fill out one simple application, and then top employers apply to hire you. So over a four-week time frame, you'll receive personalized interview requests with upfront salary information, so you can make informed decisions about which opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big companies like Facebook, as well as smaller emerging startups. And the size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. So right now, Hired can help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. And they keep all your information totally private, so there's no way that your current employer or past employer can see that you're looking for a new job. The best part about Hired is that it's completely free to you as the person who's looking to get hired. In fact, Hired will actually pay you a $1,000 hiring bonus if you take a job that was offered to you through Hired. And for Full Stack Radio listeners, they're actually doubling that offer to $2,000. So if you're a Full Stack Radio listener who's looking for a new opportunity, you can use Hired to look for a new job. And if you take one through Hired, you'll get $2,000. So if you're interested in more details about that, you can head over to www.hired.com slash fullstackradio to find out more. Thanks to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. Back to the show. Is there anything like, um, I don't know if this is even a good question, so you tell me if this even makes sense. <laughs> but uh, one of the things I think about with Stripe is like, everything seems to happen so fast. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, you might compare the experience of paying for something with your credit card at a store or somewhere or something is really slow. Is it slow because the banks are slow or is it slow because, you know, the store is slow? And or how does Stripe do things so much quicker when they're dealing with like the same systems that some of these other things that you would encounter are you know what i'm saying yeah i'm glad you think we are fast <laughs> because that, that is actually calling out to the banks is one of the slowest parts of an api call when you make a charge it accounts for sometimes one to two seconds of that call so that that is we experience the same problems that other folks experience if you're on mobile and you're using stripe you're probably also seeing high latency we we definitely <laughs> want to get that number down. We want to be able to do other things while we're waiting for that network call to complete. So we actually used to uh, block tokenizing on making sure CVC, AVS, things like that pass. Uh, But we stopped doing that because we want your tokens to always succeed. So that if the user is paying and something times out, they at least, you at least have a token that you can reference that has their card information. Yeah. Um, So now it's a charge call that is the slow one. So when you tokenize, does that still communicate with the banks at all? No, not at all. So how do you know, like, you know, someone's country and stuff like that? Is that still coming from the same bin database then, not from the actual bank? Yeah, so this is all static now. And that's why some of our data is out of date from time to time. Uh, we do update it, of course, but uh, because it's all static, we need to 
but we can't actually make that call to the bank during token yeah. But for checkout, if you've used checkout, checkout before, you'll notice that there's a green check mark that appears after you tokenize. Uh, and that's because checkout uses a special parameter that makes a call to the bank. Got it. Cool. Uh, so when you get a token from checkout, it's actually more uh, likely to be chargeable than a token from yeah. XPS. Interesting. So um, another area that I know you have a lot of experience with at Stripe, mm-hmm. which would be cool to talk about, is Radar. Mm-hmm. So Radar is a f- not super recent, but fairly recently added thing that is, I guess, giving like a name and a, a real kind of product yeah. to some of the fraud stuff that you were doing before and adding a bunch of new stuff to it as well. So what makes Radar, you know, a cool thing to you, I guess? Yeah. Um, yeah, for us, Radar was something we had always done and something that users didn't know that we were doing for them. So it was good to give them some visibility into exactly why we were blocking the charges that we were. For me, the coolest part of Radar is actually the rule builder. I don't know if you played around with it much. Uh, it's built on Draft.js, which is a React library, and it allows you to write your own rules on top of our rules. Uh, and this is something users have been asking for for a long time. There's so many hacks that we've put in over the years to, uh, for example, block prepaid cards for specific users. Uh, and this just creates a way for users to do this on their own. Uh, depending on the type of business you are, you might see different patterns of fraud that our models just can't generalize for. So, for example, a lot of businesses don't want to take on the risk of having prepaid cards at all or having cards from a certain country be processed. So they can just write a rule to uh, allow review for or just to outright block those types of transactions. So that's a big load off of support burden for us, just in terms of helping users do these custom things. For sure. So what sort of rules, I guess, can you make? So one example you said is the Mm -hmm. prepaid stuff, blocking Mm -hmm. stuff from other countries. What sort of other stuff is available? Yeah, so you can also use our machine learning models by using risk level. So we provide three risk levels, uh, normal, elevated, and highest. Um, So if you want to block uh, cards that are elevated risk and match specific other features, then you can do that as well. So you can combine our models with your own custom logic. Cool. So one of the things that I've always, I guess, assumed that Stripe is able to do Mm -hmm. uh, is sort of like detect when this card has been used by or a bunch of other merchants have said, hey, this charge ended up being fraudulent using this card, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. and other people on the network sort of get to benefit from, you know, that sort of thing. Are there any other examples of how sort of Stripe as a big, massive network helps benefit people in fraud detection kind of situations? Yeah, uh, we definitely know when card testing attacks hit. So we know that certain cards might be stolen and we'll block that across the network. Let's see, we also have data on, you know, if the card was used in the US, but then it was used in Germany on your account, then it might look suspicious to us. Uh, So this is all bundled up into our risk levels uh, we also do some monitoring on checkout in terms of user behavior. So does this user uh, exhibit suspicious behavior when they were checking out? And that's actually something that we'll be able to do with Elements as well, because we now have access to that UI. Um, so we can kind of tell if you're doing something shady on the UI before you make your purchase. So what sort of things does that include, or is that kind of a trade secret? That That is, if, if I tell you, <laughs> then we'll have to change it. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Awesome. Well, um, yeah, I think uh, that's probably all I got for questions for you. I know we've been going for about half an hour now, so maybe it's a good time to uh, start wrapping up. But sure. uh, we do have a little bit of time. So is 
before we get going, I guess, is there anything that you think is interesting to share about, you know, the way things work at Stripe or what sort of things you've worked on at Stripe that maybe, you know, people like myself who are just users of the service would never even think to think about or ask about? Yeah, I think all our users know that we do a lot to make sure uh, this payments experience is very good. Uh, before Stripe, it was very, very painful to integrate with any payment provider. Um, and with Stripe, we as engineers, one of our mottos is working for the user. Uh, so no matter what we have to do on our end to make things nice, we will do it for the best possible product and user experience. Sometimes we will bike shed for a very, very long time on what to name an API parameter or what to name an endpoint. So <laughs> it's all for the users. Awesome. Well, thanks uh, so much for coming on and uh, giving me your time. It's been a pleasure to chat with you about this stuff. Mm-hmm. I've always wanted to talk to someone uh, at Stripe about some of this stuff. <laughs> so it's awesome to be able to uh, to touch base with you about it. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, what's the best way for people to kind of to keep up with you or things that you're working on at Stripe? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter or you can follow Stripe on Twitter. Uh, we also have a blog that uh, posts updates every time we have small product updates. So you should follow that. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Michelle. If anybody's interested for in show notes for this episode, they'll be available at fullstackradio.com slash 60. Thanks to Hired and Rollbar for sponsoring the podcast as always. See you next time.